Hey, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and at one point during the interview that you're about to hear, Alana Mayo laughs at me. She's talking about feeling comfortable on set for the very first time in her career because there's finally people on set that look like her. And I tell her that I can't believe that that has only happened now. I don't know, call me ignorant, but I'm only viewing things in Hollywood from the outside. And so that is why I think that someone like Alana, her perspective is so valuable. Alana's black, she's bisexual, she's a woman, she's in her 30s, which is notable since she's a film executive. And we talk about seeing all these different aspects of her identity represented in Hollywood on screen and off, and the pace of that change, what's happening to really keep that momentum up. Alana leads production at Outlier Society, which is Michael B. Jordan's production company. They are one of the pioneers in the industry to use inclusion riders to ensure diversity on set. And this is referring to all types of diversity. One of my personal frustrations is that we tend to use diversity, that word diversity, and we only mean black people. And that is definitely beginning to change. So we talk about all of this, including the signals to look out for that say this is more than a trend, it's a movement, and it is here to stay. From Luminary Media, you're listening to LGBTQ&A. So we talk so much about diversity in Hollywood, and usually that encompasses actors and on-screen talent. And I'm slowly starting to see the conversation start to include people behind the scenes, which is equally as important, right? Absolutely. The cool thing about making content is this is you know, cliche, but it is it's the collaborative nature of it. And everyone who is on the set, in my opinion, contributes to the storytelling. And so when you think about the reason why we're focused on inclusivity, um, wherever it appears on screen or behind camera, it's to try to create stories that feel more representative of different types of people and experiences. And the more people that you have around that process who reflect either a specific experience that you're trying to convey or just different points of views, the richer, the fuller, and I think the more honest and authentic the storytelling becomes. So I for sure experience both. And I'm very grateful to have worked on at least one movie that had this beautifully eclectic group of people um, working on it. And and you you note the difference. You know, I, I, I happen to be biased yeah. for the approach where you have lots of different types of people collaborating with and clashing in ideas. You know, there's all that downtime on set where you're just having conversations and sometimes, you know, really inspired, cool stuff that finds its way on screen comes out of that. What, what movie was that one? Uh, that was this movie, Just Mercy, that Michael, my partner, Michael B. Jordan, uh, just starred in for one. Warner Brothers last year, um, and it was the first movie to fall under Warner Brothers' new um, inclusion policy, which is a corporate-wide policy that Michael helped them author. Um, And we shot the movie in Atlanta, and it was—I hate describing things as diverse for both grammatic and uh, ideological reasons, but it was populated with all of these different types of people in, in terms of, you know, race and ethnicity and and gender and and sexuality. But it was just really refreshing to walk on a set and feel comfortable. There was no part of me that felt othered on that set, which I don't think I've ever experienced before. Ever? Well, not certainly not in the context of my job, no. I think that'd be really surprising to people. Really? 
Oh, they oh they don't know about Hollywood and <laughs> the demographic makeup of this industry. Well, you mentioned. So you lead production at Outlier Society, mm-hmm. which is Michael B. Jordan's production company. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the inclusion policy in Ryder. Just mm-hmm. for people outside the industry, can sure. you explain exactly sure. what that means? Ryder is just attached to any piece of talent's contract on a production or you know musical tour uh, that demands certain things for that. So I think we're used to hearing like... Ex-celebrity demands red M&M's. That's exactly. I was going to use that. expanding that. Exactly. So how wonderful if you can use a writer not just to demand, you know, the kind of (laughs) M&M's you like, but also to to, um, demand a certain hiring practice that should uh, engender more inclusivity. And so... Michael's agent and I sit on the board of the Inclusion Institute and found out about the Inclusion Writer. Shortly thereafter, Frances McDormand made that beautiful speech at the Oscars where she educated so many people as to the existence of this uh, of this idea. And Michael, you know, being the thought leader that he is, kind of immediately raised his hand and said, this is something that you know, that we should be doing for our company and we should attach to all projects that we produce. And so, you know, as with anything that's that's uh, that's uber progressive, we had to figure out the mechanics of that. And our next project was going to be with Warner Brothers, who is really collaborative and works with us very closely to figure out how we could implement the inclusion writer on the movie. And what ended up happening in the best of ways is instead of just adopting the writer for our contract on that specific movie, they decided to rewrite their corporate-wide policy. So it would not only affect just Mercy, but it would also you know be scaled to include all productions that happen underneath the Warner Media banner. And when we're talking about hiring more diverse people, mm-hmm. is this in terms of race only or is it also about religion and no, sex, everything? The reason I hate the word diverse is because I think that it's now signifies, we've been using it in a certain way that it now signifies something that it, I don't think we now mean it to. So usually people hear diverse and they think black people, yeah. right? which which is one, not inclusive of a bunch of other wonderful races, but also not inclusive of other identity markers. So what I like to consider it is, is underrepresented individuals or traditionally underrepresented individuals within the context of our industry. And that goes across race, that goes across gender, it, it, depending on the role. I mean, there's so many types of people that have not had traditionally in this industry access to or opportunity to the level that other people have. Absolutely. And I can put a finer point on that, but I feel like people will get what I mean. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you mentioned that we think of diversity as black and white. Yeah. I thought it was so funny that Oscar So White stopped trending when yeah. we nominated more black people. Yeah, yeah. It was a really effective, you know, shout out to April Rain. That was a really effective social media campaign. It was. But like the issue yeah. wasn't like, quote unquote, solved with more black That's people. Right. That's exactly But right. we kind of stopped caring That's exactly at that right. point, which is yeah. so interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's on the one hand, you want to celebrate what feels like progress. I get asked a lot specifically around the really quick change in the nomination of Black people for Oscars specifically. Is this a trend or is this, do we feel like we've actually reached a tipping point of change? I think it's a trend that will have lasting power because I think that the people that are doing the work, specifically if we're talking about Black creators in Hollywood, I think the level of work and commitment and passion that's coming from that community specifically, I should say my community, I'm a part of it, it should, should, there's no reason why it should curtail anytime soon. And I think what, speaking of my generation, what we're very lucky to have is 
years of people that have come before us that have been Black creators in this industry that have created the level of opportunity that we have now. And and you see all of these people capitalizing on it in really exciting and profound ways. And that coupled with, you know, the technological change that's happened in our industry, the fact that we could be sitting in this room recording content in the way that we are means that all of those creators that are motivated and excited to tell their stories have the access to do it. Now, how the industry reacts to that and whether or not, you know, movie studios will want to continue to greenlight content that's made by and for, you know, people of color, black people or other, we'll see. You know, whether the Oscars will consistently have black nominees and winners, I don't know. I hate to be somewhat cynical about it, but I think celebrating the win of that campaign no longer is necessary might be a little premature. Yeah, I I think it was Ava DuVernay that says that seeing more diverse people is now a trend. It's not yet a movement. Yeah, yeah. What to you are the signals that might signify that this is becoming a movement? It does for sure feel like a movement. I think there's two lanes to focus on. The creator lane is doing incredibly well, right? You have people, I mean, I'm highly biased towards her, but I think about the work that my fiance Lena Waith is doing and not just putting out her own content, but creating so many opportunities to produce other people like her, other queer people, other women, other people of color to produce their projects as well or to hire them as well. She's even hard on me in terms of when I come home and talk about people that I'm hiring. And last night she was like, there are all of these amazing young black women who are coming up in the ranks directing and you need to hire one. And so so she's, you know, she and other people like her, including, you know, Michael, I'm also biased towards him, are really, I think, driving a movement in really exciting ways. The other lane is the industry and the leaders of it, the people that are in corporate positions uh, at studios and networks, the people that maybe have been seated in positions of power for a really long time and are struggling with how to adapt to this movement that's happening and running parallel to what they've always been doing. And what I notice, particularly running a company that has a young Black man as its principal, is that the way that people think of our company is not necessarily aligned with how we would describe it. So I think a lot of, I get a lot of calls from traditional people that are like, yeah, you know, diversity is important right now. So we're going to make this civil rights movie. Would you all be interested? Well, you know, great. You're kind of aware that this thing is happening and this conversation is happening and maybe you want to participate in it. What about the awareness that this is just a company led by a Black man who has his own interest in storytelling and that that may not align with how you see him or that may not align with what content you think is valuable. But how about leaning into the fact that this is a new voice that is interested in reflecting his reality and reflecting his community? And I think that gap we haven't necessarily closed just yet. I see. A lot of the reasons I I hear about a lack of diversity in film mm-hmm. is based on different assumptions that are made mm-hmm. about how a black man can't lead a movie unless he's named Will Smith. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that men won't see a movie led by women. And these are things that we kind of assume based on a history, although maybe there hasn't been an opportunity to disprove those things. Yeah. However, mm-hmm. like one of the big reasons I hear that queer and trans people are not mm-hmm. in more feature films is because of censorship laws in mm-hmm. Asia. How do we get around things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question when you're 
distributing content through the internet, a lot of those rules don't apply. Um, We've actually had the most wonderful disruption in the past five years of this industry that has allowed for the level of inclusion that's happening now and that can allow for so much more. We as an industry have as content creators within the industry have so much more power and autonomy and earning potential now than we had when there were two modes of distribution. There's workarounds if you want to for all of these quote-unquote factual issues or all of these, you know, kind of business decisions that companies have to make. If you're incentivized to do it, there's barriers to entry for anything, literally anything. If you had said, you know, however many years ago, we're going to put people in planes and have them fly long distances. Any educated person could give you a list of a hundred reasons why that's a crazy idea. And yet here we are, you know? Um, So even if you look at the fact that any minority by virtue of, or by definition, is a smaller percentage of the world or this industry or America or whatever the case is, we're not even at the level where we're representing people commensurate with the percentage of the population that they represent, you know, or their community represents. So I'm like, let's just get there, you know? Absolutely. Everything that we're talking about, I find that it's so easy for people to stick one label on somebody. So, you know, you are a woman, you're black, you're queer, you're in your 30s. I think that your age is quite notable for someone in your position. But do you feel like people often will be like, she's a black filmmaker? Yeah, yeah. Only. Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent. And I, for, honestly, I'm not sure why. I became known to be a queer person in my industry later in my life and also in kind of in a very not public fashion, it wasn't intended to be public, but then my um, partner decided to become more public. Because I am engaged to another woman who is also in this industry, I would think that people would interact with me as a queer person as much, if not more so, as they do with me as a Black person. But funnily enough, like, it doesn't come up and people don't expect me. Like, I just joined the board of GLAAD and I also thought that would kind of change some of the conversations that happen in and around my work. But it surprisingly doesn't. I'm not sure why that is. I just find that sometimes people who have all these intersecting identities, mm. we don't know how to process at all. So mm. we, like, we pick one. I feel super tapped into all of these aspects of my identity and and always have. And I feel very connected to all of the community communities that I'm a member of and that I have the privilege of being a member of because of these various parts of my identity. But I'm definitely super Black. (laughs) I've always been. I feel very proud to be a queer person, too. But I think maybe I've been engaged more politically in issues that surround race. And and when I came into Hollywood, I not only came into Hollywood, my first couple of internships were with Lee Daniels and Warrington Hudlin. So I was also very acutely aware of the experience of being Black in Hollywood. If I could pick a person who was a big point of inspiration for me for wanting to do this, it was Spike Lee. And that was completely connected to the fact that he was making movies about the Black experience that I also related to, not just as a Black woman, but also as a content creator. But I think you're absolutely right. Maybe, too, we are trained to be polite. And Mm. that feels like something that is personal and private. Whereas you can walk into a room and if you want to talk about your sexuality or not, it's your choice. But you don't have a choice to present Black or not. That's really interesting. I think that's, well, two things. One, 
99% of people just assume that I'm straight. And that's fair because if I identify as anything, I would identify as bisexual. And I've dated men and, you know, I wasn't in a, a relationship with a woman that my colleagues in my adult life knew about until I started dating Lena. It's so funny because I remember when I started dating Lena, I remember like it was a very, you know, big part of conversation. One, because I was falling in love. So obviously I was running around and telling everybody. But also I don't think up until that point that necessarily everyone was aware of the fact that I would identify as bisexual. So you identified as bi before you dated Lena. I'm one of those annoying people that always thought I will be with whoever I'm with. I'm attracted to men and women. I'm attracted to anyone who I am attracted to, if that makes any sense. And so if you would ask me, I don't know, six or seven years ago, you know, what do I identify as? I would probably have given that answer of I don't like to put an identity on my sexuality. I'm very open to it. But if you would ask other people in my life before then, they probably would have said, oh, yeah, Lana's straight. And if you ask Lena, she's like, she was totally straight until she met me. (laughs) That's actually the version I thought that I heard. Yeah, yeah. I think well, that's, that's the popular that's version. Because I happen to be engaged to someone who does far more public speaking and interviews than I do. And her narrative has always been, Alana is straight. And then she met me and here we are. <laughs> that's so interesting because I was thinking that you started to fall in love with this person who was mm-hmm. a woman and had to like mm-hmm. rethink your entire identity. Oh, no, God, no, 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 no. Not even not even a little bit. And it's funny because other people would ask all of the time. Well, two things. One, Lena's friends were worried that she was going to fall in love with a straight girl who was having, you know, six months of exploration and then was going to break her heart, which I thought was strange because I was like, no, that's not. that's Well, one, that would, you know, that would make me, I guess, not so nice of a person. But also I was like, oh, that's not that's not the experience that I'm having in this relationship. And then it's only people that knew me. All of my friends and all of my family members and people that knew me well in my life were like, oh, yeah, sure. And I, in fact, my cousin Jelani, who's also gay and who I was there when he came out to our family, which was which was a pretty big deal. He was like, oh, I always knew you'd end up with a woman. (laughs) He was like, yeah, this is not surprising to me at all. So how did it affect things that you started dating Lena Mm -hmm. and then she slowly started to become Mm -hmm. a more public person? I'm. I'm actually really grateful for it. I am myself more of a private person. I've never, even working in this industry, I've never wanted for or desired any sort of publicity. It's great about Lena. She's so, she's, for all of her comfort in being so outward facing, she is consistently the same person. What I'm really, really grateful for, though, is that what I've always loved about working in the entertainment industry is the platform that it gives you. And and for me, I always express that through fighting for certain stories that I thought deserved to be told or had something to say. And so I feel really, really privileged that through Lena and I being together as an out lesbian couple, that that seems to have had a positive effect for people, you know, around us, both people in our personal lives and the people that come up to her mostly or you know or dm her and say you know it's great seeing this black queer love you know um on instagram or in you know it was she was invited to to do the cover of vanity fair and annie Leibovitz was going to shoot it lena called me shortly thereafter and i was so excited for her and so proud of this moment and she was like annie wants to shoot the both of us together i'm not a person that's like comfortable (laughs) being in any sort of spotlight but i was like annie Leibovitz is going to shoot a picture that is inclusive of me and for Vanity Fair. And in my mind, I imagine like a wind machine and like hair and makeup. She was like, yeah, no, no, no. She wants to shoot us at home. And she's like, just wear what you normally would wear. And like, I was like, what? (laughs) There's no way I'm doing that. That's crazy. And 
I'm so grateful to Annie for doing that. And what she had in her mind that I was too dense to get is that it would be very powerful to show a queer couple at home in love in this kind of a publication that gets in the hands of so many different types of people. Annie showed up at our house and like we like rolled out of bed and like went downstairs and sat on the couch. The number of people that talks about what it meant to just see us sitting on our couch, you know, like it's, it's so special. That's that's a it's a real privilege. And I'm grateful to Lena for all of the incredible work that she's done that put us in a position to do that. That's such a great point, because when we talk about representation, we're talking about characters on screen, but also people in real life. And I mean, just off the top of my head, I can't think of another same sex queer women couple that is a people of color. Mm, yeah. Obviously, yeah, they exist. I know. I know. We're out there. I can think of a couple yeah. that are like not actually publicly out that I want to name. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. It's 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 surprising. I mean... I certainly would never take the position for a host of reasons of people needing to come out or people needing to be more public. And I would love for everyone who wants to be out, but I'm also completely understanding and empathetic to people that make the decision not to. At the same time, the reason why I could have the definition of you know, I just am who I am is because I grew up in a lot of privilege. You know, I grew up very safe. I grew up around a family that was that was actually very diverse and had a lot of different types of people in it. And so I've always felt safe to just be the full expression of myself. What what makes me sad is I think probably the reason why you can't think of any more examples is because that's a that's a real privilege and it's a rare privilege, you know, for for people that identify the way that I do. What I'm hoping for is not that like more people come out and become more public facing, but that the environment around us changes so more more people feel safe to do that should they want to. And I guess that goes to show our industry, too, yeah. where there are not actually that many queer women of color in the public eye to mm-hmm. begin with, yeah. to let alone yeah. be coupled up. A hundred percent. I imagine that in your experience, you've been the only black person, the only mm-hmm. woman, the only queer person in the room. <laughs> There's other black queer women in the industry who, you know, who like I'm friendly with in my professional life. Yeah, there's there's never been a moment where I have looked across the table and been like, hey, sister girl, and it's been somebody who looks or identifies as me, which which is, is also problematic um, because I, I always say to people, like, I check all the boxes, you know, for, for anyone who's looking to fill a quota. But if you even just took away, you know, if you just took one piece of my identity and took the others away, I'd still be the only in most of the rooms that I'm in, which is astonishing. So is it then your job to like represent your entire race or sexuality? Yeah, I try I try not to do that. I mean, I I struggle with because I have a lot of opinions and I enjoy expressing them. I struggle with pulling myself back to not do that that furthers the belief that any community is a monolith. But I but I, you know, for example, the other day we're having a conversation and we're talking about two roles, one of which will be a woman, one of which will be a man, and all these different names were being thrown out. And I raised my hand and I said, I just want to say it now. Like, one's a woman probably will not have the quotes or the leverage to demand as much money as whoever gets cast in the male counterpart role, but they're the same size role, they're equally important, and they should have parity and they should get paid the exact same thing. And everybody was totally cool with it and they were like, oh yeah, of course. Like, you know, that should go without saying, but I wanted to make sure to say it because I know how easily it is in a passive way, as we were talking about earlier, for that not to happen. And so I find myself, you know, there there have been more times than I wish to count where I've just been overtly triggered and somebody has just said something completely offensive about 
you know, a community of which I identify as a member. And then I have to, you know, call that person out. Or And by the way, that happens, that happens around, I would say, the part of my identity that's queer and a woman more than anything. But really what I think, you know, I find myself having to do more often than that is um, things that are unconscious bias, I'm doing air quotes, or um, or that are that are just not thought of because people are going with the status quo and the status quo is not inclusive of the thoughts and feelings of certain people. Um, I'm usually just like, hey, just want to make you all aware that maybe you should be a little more thoughtful about this. So you're doing that now as an executive. Uh-huh. When you were not an executive mm-hmm. at lower levels, were you mm-hmm. listened to? Um, it's Yes and no. I've had jobs where I felt like not that I was like yelling into a void and not being heard, but where I literally was dismissed as a person. You know, I had one job for a company that I wish I could name, but I won't, where I realized that I was like a diversity hire and that I was just there to fill a quota and that there was no interest in hearing from me in general. I, I've been very fortunate in my career that with the exception of, I think I would say that one job, I've worked for people, people, not necessarily companies, but people that have you know, wanted to, that that one have just been great people, but that also have wanted to create environments where everyone has the opportunity to chime in and to push. And I've gone back and forth with, is it worse to be looked to just because I'm black or just because I'm a woman or just because I'm queer? Or is it is it is it better that I at least am in the room and maybe can champion something that wouldn't have been championed otherwise? And I think I've landed that it is it is better that I'm there, even if it's you know, even if it's uncomfortable for me, which it is often, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna be just um thought of as I don't wanna be just thought of as the identities that I represent. Um I wanna be thought of also, you know, in the ways that I'm just a person. And hopefully you speaking up makes it easier for, like, the next person who speaks up. They're like, oh, it's not just Alana. I would love that. Yeah, I think there's a a line to walk. And I I try to just be my authentic self and speak my mind and not put too much pressure on myself to behave in a way that I think will be effective. But I've worked in enough environments and around enough types of people that there's a political element on top of that. And I, I try to... I try to speak to people in a way that fosters conversation as opposed to just antagonizing. You know, one of the ways in which Lena and I are, are different is that she's like, she's all provocation and she just says what she means and she doesn't have a filter and she's very direct and very straightforward. And it's great because she gets a lot done that way. And I think that I go there when I need to, but I've also developed, and I think this is just because I've worked at at movie studios, I've also tried to develop the ability to create enough comfort that I can say the provocative, uncomfortable thing and not necessarily always be at odds with the people that I'm working with. Because... It's really astonishing, you know, it's astonishing how many people I work with who, like, I don't think probably have any friends that are like me and don't have any access to my experience and are so um, insecure about and afraid of any sort of change to the status quo and what that means for them. And while part of me is like, 
oh, well, you know, <laughs> the change to come in, get, get on board. There's also a part of me that wants to facilitate conversations that will allow for more people to come in, even if that means having to be a little political in moments. I often find that people are so afraid to make a mistake, to mm-hmm. say something that's going to mm-hmm. be offensive, and yet they don't, like, do the next step to, like, then educate themselves on this yeah. community. Yes. Oh, my God, yes. People, oh, my God, yes. With, like, pronouns, people are just, like, freaking out and, like, terrified to mess oh up, God, but they're not, like, seeking out work by non-binary person. Okay. Like, why do they prefer this pronoun? That's right. It's Hollywood. Los Angeles is a bubble. You know, Los Angeles has become has become more gentrified. And what was what was a city? It's still it's still one of the most international cities in the world. But I feel that people find their bubbles and they and they sit there and they find comfort there. To me, that's always been the first thing that I recommend that people do is just talk to someone who's different than you are. Whatever, however they're different. Just put yourself in environments where you can be around different experience because to have friends and acquaintances and business relationships with all different types of people, it's been really, It's I think it's one of the reasons why I've had a really good time in my career to date is that I've been around all different types of people and I understand different types of people and I understand different stories and I get to hear about people's backgrounds and their families and their personal lives. And I find myself being surprised by people that I may have stereotyped and put in a box. You know, I'm like... I, I talk about the monolith of old straight white men all the time. And then I'll meet someone who I realize, like, oh, my perception of you is completely unfair and wrong. And you didn't have the life that I pictured in my mind. And that goes both ways. But, you know, it's like get out of Brentwood, you know, like that's a nice start. Question. When you are reading scripts, mm-hmm. everyone talks about how much good content there is nowadays. Mm-hmm. And I agree with that to an extent. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that there's not great content and I don't want to watch something just good. I want to watch great. Is it always apparent when you're reading a script the difference? That's such a good question. Yes. Yeah. It's it, there. There's there's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people that are great writers. Like a very small percentage of people. And because of that, it's so apparent. By the way, some of the the things that I've read that have been the best writing aren't things that I care to see translated on screen. What I think is exciting now is that the definition of like of great content encompasses so many things, right? So sometimes things are just exciting because we haven't seen them before. And they may not be the most sophisticated writing. They may not be the best technical expression of of the story on screen. But it's so arresting because you have not seen them before. Like, I remember watching Awkward Black Girl in my office and staying till, like, 10 o'clock and and binging the first season of that because I was late to it. And that's not, that doesn't have the highest production value and that's not, like, the glossiest shocking. That's Issa Rae's Sorry. I think it's shockingly low budget, actually. It is. To have got this creator, this show, insecure. But... It was so funny and so so effective in in relaying what Issa was trying to say and who she was and what her voice was and what her contribution was to this conversation. And it was just funny. Like, I was laughing so hard watching this internet web series. And I think that's, that's part of the excitement of today is that the way that we've always... And listen, I am a film studies major, which is like the major that you have when you have a lot of privilege and you're a fan of cinema and you get to sit in a theater, you know, for hours a week and watch 
Godard films. I'm a snob. Like, I am a Criterion Collection movie snob. And so if you ask me what's quote-unquote great, I'm going to name a lot of things that most people probably have never seen. But we're in this era where, like, the only reason why we define classic cinema as great are the, the movies that were encompassed, that were included in the the syllabus of, of my film studies major is because somebody said, oh, those are those are great films. And it was a subjective determination. So now we're in this new era where we're finding all of these creative and, and unique expressions of storytelling. And who's to say that that can also exist in the canon of great cinema or in the canon of great television? I mean, even the fact that we talk about television the way that we did when I first moved here 13 years ago, nobody wanted to be in television. No movie star would ever have done no. it. No! Television was synonymous with B, kind of down the road, middling, you know, storytelling. You had you had The Sopranos, you had The Wire, you had basically HBO, and, and AMC was starting to, you know, was starting to make that same kind of premium adult content. But television wasn't wasn't exalted in the way that it is now. So it's it, it's all it's all fluid and evolving. And while I still think there's a very small percentage of writers that are great and a very small percentage of actors that are great. I mean, we were we were uh, last night at the AFI event honoring Denzel Washington, and I was like, this man is just. A genius. He's just, you just look at the body of work and you're like, you were capable of doing something that the vast majority of people in your profession can't. We're almost out of time, but I have one more question. You mentioned your film degree. You also have an English degree. I do. Do you have aspirations to write? I have no aspirations to write except for my own personal enjoyment and emails, but I do hope one day to teach. Oh. I do hope one day to teach because uh, I, I, the more that I have these conversations around diversity and inclusion. The more that I wish that, you know, I had great mentors and through through my jobs and, and internships, but the more that I wish that there were a curriculum that existed that was also more inclusive and that was also um, saying to, you know, probably the small percentage of, of uh, people that, that would look like me or identify as I do that are in English programs or or um, film and television programs at, in schools of all sorts that would suggest to them that like this is a career path for you. If I use my English degree for anything, it'll be for that. Fantastic. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank you. That is it for today. We'll be back next week with another interview, so make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. And then until then, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JeffMasters1. Those are also great ways to connect and recommend guests for the show. We are produced by Luminary Media, Nyan Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate is one of the longest running LGBTQ news magazines in the world. Come check us out at our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Zach Stafford, Jonathan Hirsch, John Asante, Car Navadia, and myself with sound engineering by Scott Somerville and Mark Bush. We'll see you next week.